0: 333-1933. Online at mypremiereortho.com.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to be talking about autism. The number of children diagnosed with autism each year is increasing, and a recent report from the Centers on on Disease Control say uh, one in 88 children are diagnosed with autism. Some say those rising numbers are due to increased awareness of the autism spectrum disorders, while others say those increases signal changes in our environment. Those are the issues we're going to talk about today, those and a lot of others. Uh, We have... Three guests in the studio and one who will be joining us by phone. Dr. Heather Franklin is with us. She's a pediatrician at IU Health Southern Indiana. Janelle Youngman uh, is the college internship program occupational therapist and Adria Nassim, a college internship program and IU student. Joining us by phone uh, in the program will be Brooke Gottdenker, the mother of an 8-year-old uh, placed on the autism spectrum. will be joining her uh, she'll be joining us here in a few minutes. So you can visit uh, you can join us on the program uh, by phoning us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition you can also follow us on twitter at noon edition now got all that out
2: of the way <laughs> we can actually
1: get on to the program wow so um, i want to ask uh, dr franklin first to sort of describe autism you know what what is it how does it present itself and uh, why has this become a, a bigger issue today
3: Well, autism is defined as a neurodevelopmental disorder in which children have difficulties uh, primarily with uh, social interaction and um, communication in general, whether it be verbal or nonverbal communication. Um, In addition, kids who are on the autism spectrum often have problems with narrowed interest or repetitive um, or ritual-type behaviors that sort of set them apart then uh, from other more appropriately developing children. So that's a sort of a broad definition, but kind of one that ties together uh, the kids on the spectrum. Certainly, every child's an individual. They all have their own strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, they, as a collection of uh, kids, they have some similarities, but they all have very different uh, sort of approaches to life and how they communicate.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the the whole range on the spectrum would seem to be one reason, perhaps, that more and more students or more and more kids are being being diagnosed uh, Mm -hmm. in this way, correct?
3: I think that's true. The other thing that's being looked at is whether or not it's just more of an inclusive definition. You know, If we look at all Mm -hmm. the kids on the spectrum, there are kids who have, according to the diagnostic manuals of uh, psychiatry, there are really three groups. There are kids who have autism proper. There are kids who have what's called pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And then there's a third group who's Asperger's. So if you look at those groups, Collectively, then it, it seems like it's a, you know a pretty big number.
1: It, it seems like we've heard more about asperger's lately mm-hmm, too mm-hmm. perhaps because some people on television shows are are identified as having asperger's uh, what's what's the difference or
3: um, specifically, the difference with Asperger's in terms of meeting criteria for diagnosis is a, a person who has trouble with social interactions they are they have poor. Uh, ability to read social cues. You mm-hmm. know, they have trouble initiating communication with others appropriately, but they don't have a frank uh, speech disorder when they're young. So they don't have a speech delay, as opposed to the kids who are in the autism and the the PDD group.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask. When when do you start? When do people bring their children in and say, "Gosh, something just doesn't seem quite right here. We're having some, as you said, maybe delayed speech." When, mm-hmm. when does this first present?
3: Uh, Generally, the more impaired the child is, the earlier you can tell. You know, we see children, of course, from birth on and see them developmentally to be screened, you know, at each checkup. The um, Academy of Pediatrics uh, basically has put together really nice resources that allow us to start screening kids early um, informally. And then when they're usually about 18 months, we start doing formal checklists in the office. Well before that age, though, you know, if children have significant communication disorders and speech delay, we can see that early, you know, Mm -hmm. even as early as six to nine months of age.
0: And then is it helpful to begin intervention as early as possible? Is that an important Aspect of this?
3: There's no question that early intervention makes a huge difference. You know, identifying the support that the kids need, helping the family understand where they need to be supported, and then using our resources, you know, early on with speech therapy, with occupational therapy, mm-hmm. you know, developmental therapies in general if we need to.
1: All right. Now, uh, Janelle and Adrian, I'm going to ask you to hold on for a second. Because I'm going to bring Brooke in on the conversation. Brooke's a mother uh, of a child who's been placed on the autism spectrum. She's in Indianapolis, but she also used to live in Bloomington. So, uh, Brooke, could you uh, talk a little, a little bit about uh, your child and identifying, um, I don't know your child's name, so identifying your child as being on the spectrum, how, how you came to that uh, determination, took her to the doctor and you know? all
4: Yeah, um, we, my son was actually diagnosed. Him,
1: yeah.
4: I think he was about two and a half when we started having him evaluated. Mm -hmm. And for us, because he was our first child, it was pretty subtle. Like, we really just thought he was shy. You know, it was, at the time, it was pretty mild. Mm -hmm. Um, But he had a speech delay, which I think started around the age of two when his speech started to kind of drop off. Um, and so that's when we you know, went through the evaluation process. And he actually got a diagnosis of PDD-NOS.
1: Uh, now what is that?
4: It's Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified. Oh. okay. Which means really autistic tendencies. Um, I think he probably got that diagnosis because he was so young. Um, and at the time he was pretty mild. But I think today he would get an autism diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm. So, were you in Bloomington when you received that diagnosis?
4: We're actually we used to be in Indianapolis, but we're in Bloomington oh, now. Oh, I see.
1: Okay, <laughs> I had that. I had that backwards. So, yeah, what, so what, what,
4: we were in Indianapolis when he was diagnosed. Okay.
1: So, what are what are the differences in, in your experiences and in living in those two communities?
4: Um, I think we we've only been in Bloomington for about nine months now,
2: so I can't. You know, I don't know quite yet.
4: But I would say there's there are probably more resources in Indianapolis mm-hmm. um, in terms of therapy, you know, different therapies. Um, well, the school systems have been, you know, pretty similar, but we felt like there was more to choose from in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm.
0: Brooke, how old is your son now?
4: He's eight now. Oh, okay, great.
0: And you described this as as um, or the way you said his speech dropped off. Is, is this something that's been a progression then, where he's actually? Um, you've, seen, you've seen this issue progress with him uh, and get worse?
4: You know, for him, it's kind of been a roller coaster. It's been oh. up and down. Um, like, he's, he developed very typically for the first probably six to nine months. And then looking back, we can see that, you know, things started to change then. Um, and, like, he didn't point, which is supposed to happen between nine and 12 months. Um, so there was definitely a communication issue early on, um, but he did go on to develop speech. Um, I would say definitely until 18 months, and somewhere around 2, that's when we just started to kind of lose the language. Mm-hmm. And now it's, kind of, it's come back some, some over the years, but right now I would, I would definitely classify him as nonverbal. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, I want to bring on our other two guests in the studio now, uh, Janelle Youngman and Adrian Nassim. And they're both connected to the college internship, college internship program. Uh, Janelle is the occupational therapist. Janelle, what is this program anyway?
5: Um, the college internship program is, uh, is a program that is for those students transitioning from high school to kind of college life slash work life. And it's a very comprehensive program that includes services to each student um, that can include social, academic, career, life skills, which includes a residential coordinator. Many of the students live next door to the actual center, so we have access to the students. And it's, all of these services are, are there to help get them to a more independent, functional life on their own.
1: Mm-hmm. And Adria, you're a part of this. Uh, program. You also brought a friend with you today. This is uh, yes, sir. Lu- Lucy, right? Yes, sir. Lucy's your service dog? Yes, sir. Okay. So, uh, what's your experience been with the with the program? Um,
6: well, I came to CIP in the summer of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was in the middle of my junior year of college, um, enrolled at Brescia University in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's a small Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was doing very well academically. I've always been very focused and, and dedicated to grades and academic standing, but it just so happened that I unintentionally became involved in an incident of severe bullying um with two other students. And my, I might have just mentioned that bullying is common uh for children with special needs of all types, but particularly autism, because they don't. Understand how to process the social cues and a lot of times maintain um, age-appropriate relationships. Um, and so it got to where, because of this incident, I was experiencing some very severe psychological issues and even it delved into medical issues of seizure and so forth. And my parents ultimately decided that Brescia, as good of an academic institution as it was for me, it was, it's ranked pretty top in Kentucky for students with learning disabilities, which I also have. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the best place for me to be at the time, so they consulted with, uh, one of my doctors and they sought some intervention and they found, um, C.I.P. And ever since being at C.I.P., uh, I spent about the first year just, Kind of letting go of that anxiety with the clinical, a lot of help from the clinical counseling department, um, and realizing that I could trust myself again and I was in a safe place. But now, because as Janelle mentioned, CIP is such a cohesive environment that really understands these individuals and understands the spectrum. I mean, I've been able to build myself up and work from a positive to a positive place again and be employed and live on my own with um, some support, and I'm happier now. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you're very well-spoken. <laughs> you, uh, you seem like you have uh, definitely overcome some of the issues that you were facing, obviously, because you're, you're here, and hopefully you're comfortable here.
6: Yes, sir. Thank All right.
1: you. All right. Thank you. Um, Janelle, you also have uh, – you work at Riley Hospital, and you run a, a sensory-friendly spaces business. Can you tell us what that is?
5: Um, yes I um, have my own business with a interior designer locally and she's also a speech therapist and uh, we met and started just brainstorming and I feel that the environment is such an important piece of treating children with autism and adolescents that that's something that I'm always considering, especially at CIP. I have access to their environment uh, through their work, through their apartment, and through their school. And I think you can really make a difference if you change their environment to meet their needs. And so that's kind of where Design for the Census came from. And I have no design skills at all. (laughs) But I've been an OT for 13 years. And so Becky and I combine our skills. And we've had success developing Really cool design spaces for kids uh, with autism and a a local college-age student with Asperger's. So those designs in their home spaces meet their sensory needs, Mm -hmm. help them take in their environment, help them feel more neurologically organized, and then in hopes that they can function better.
1: Yeah. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? I mean, give me sort of an example. Um, Have you worked with Adria on, on her space?
5: Well, we haven't. I've worked in her space at her apartment. Mm-hmm. I haven't really designed things for her, but it's been more adaptations um, as far as in the kitchen, um using adaptive strategies for laundry and things like that. Um, but a good example for design for the senses would be study a, a study space or a study zone in a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, kids' bedrooms have to be used for lots of different Mm -hmm. things it's used for sleeping it's used for studying it's used for retreating and relaxing Mm -hmm. and so separating that bedroom into different zones um we can do that visually with with carpet with color and 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 then hopefully they can function better Mm -hmm. in one instance we had a child who couldn't sit at a desk to do his homework so um we painted a Uh, that chalkboard paint Mm -hmm. so he can practice his homework standing or on a ball and then transfer it to his desk. So we're trying to take that space, meet his sensory needs, but still allow him to get his schoolwork done. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, we're talking about uh, autism today, and we have uh, three guests with us in the studio. Dr. Heather Franklin, a pediatrician at IU Health, Southern Indiana. Janelle Youngman, who is in the Indiana College Internship Program Occupational Therapist, Adria Nassim, a college internship program student who's also an IU student, and uh, joining us by phone from, from well, she's in Bloomington now, Brooke Gottdenker, who's the mother of an eight-year-old placed on the autism spectrum. If you want to phone us, uh, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, and you uh, can also join us on the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Well, Brooke, as a, as a mom, are you still there, Brooke? Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay, okay. great. As a, a mother of a, a child who I think you would say now has autism, um, what would you like people to know about the experience that you've had, and, and what would you like us to know about your child? Um, gosh,
4: that's a tough one. I think the biggest challenge that we've had um, as parents of a child with autism is just that you really have to kind of navigate the system on your own. Um, I think there's so, much, there's so much controversy surrounding it today. And there's just, I don't, we don't feel like there's a real consensus on what's going on with these kids and how to best treat them. Um, so for us, that's been the biggest thing, is just not having enough support to do what we need to do for Andrew.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's ask Dr. Franklin. What about that?
3: Uh, she's absolutely right. Um, and I'll share, you know, those people who know me well, um, I have a son who's on the spectrum. He's very high-functioning, but we've gone through the same sort of things with him as I'm sure she has with her son. Um, I think it's tough to get diagnosis that's uh, w- with some clarity, and then you. It's a, there's a grieving process, and then you start to figure out what the child needs and what support they need, which is always evolving. You know, as they get mm-hmm. older and they get more skills, then things have uh, – have to change. Um, and there's always, uh, an issue with the social interactions, um, that were mentioned. And I think that, um, uh, we have a shortage of mental health providers just in general for all the kids and all of the types of disorders that they have where they need support. So, um, that can also play into it. So, um, it is complex. I think there's more awareness. That's good. The more awareness we have, the more support hopefully we will be able to get from organizations and, and, um, uh, that sort of thing, but but it is, it is difficult, and it's there's no treatment really, you know, formally. So um, there's a lot of debate about what what types of therapy should be involved, and I think that's you know part of what she's uh, alluding to, um, and that has to be very individualized, and so uh, that makes it very nebulous in terms of trying to approach you know, the Mm -hmm. system to get the help that your child needs.
0: Do I understand it correctly? I mean, I know everybody's brain changes as they age. Uh, And is that more pronounced in someone with autism, that you're constantly trying to kind of um, chase a moving target almost as far as um, finding appropriate therapies?
3: I think it's part of it is that they have static um, sort of deficits that, that don't change, but then they they also have times when they they make good catch up progress. So they might get language skills, but they're still not effectively able to communicate. So there's certain mm-hmm. you know it depends on the and it depends on the patient. Mm-hmm. I mean we're we're talking about a group of um, individuals that are impaired either very very profoundly, up to you know um, very articulate individuals like we have here today who you know who have who certainly need support, but they they need a different kind of support.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Brooke, you talked about uh, moving to Bloomington and how you, you know there are more doctors and perhaps more support in Indianapolis, but you know who 's on your support team here in bloomington you don 't have to necessarily name names if you want to, but what kind of a support team have you been able to develop, and you know is the atmosphere in Bloomington uh, reasonably good for someone who has a child on the autism spectrum? Yes,
4: I think the atmosphere is excellent um, and I think. Well, my son goes to school, so he's in the public schools now. Um, so, you know, we have teachers and therapists and aides there supporting us. Um, and then we also run a part-time volunteer program in our home, which we've been able to use IU students as volunteers. Um, and so we do that after school and then on the weekends. And so thus far, that is it.
1: hmm and, and the, if someone wants to be involved in your program, uh, do you have space for other kids? Absolutely,
4: uh-huh.
7: yeah.
1: And how, how would somebody get a hold of you to um, to, to find out more?
4: They could email me, um, begottingker at yahoo.com.
1: Mm-hmm. And let me spell that for those who don't have your name in front of them: okay. G-O-T-T-D-E-N-K-E-R. Uh-huh. Okay. at yahoo.com. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're going to let you go and okay. do, do what you uh, need to do.
0: Okay. And best thank of luck you to you and yeah. your son. Thank you very All much. Right.
1: Thanks. Uh-huh. I think we're going to take a, a short break now and uh, we'll hope to get some callers in the second half of the program. That's usually the way it works here for us on Noon Edition. Uh, we're talking about autism today. Uh, you can call us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
2: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from The Herald-Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about autism. Uh, we had four guests in the first half of the program. One of them has uh, been released from it. We've released her. We let her go. Go do on. Get on with her day. We have three more with us in the studio. Dr. Heather Franklin, pediatrician at IU Health, Southern Indiana. Janelle Yankman, College Internship Program, Occupational Therapist, and Adria Nassim, College Internship Program, and Indiana University. We student. still
0: have four guests because we have Sally here in no, the Lucy. studio. Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy. I don't know where I got Sally. Sorry, Lucy.
1: She won't answer, Sally. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, huh? <laughs> well, well, we'll let Lucy come on here in a second now, too.
0: <laughs> if you have
1: questions or comments, phone us at eight five five zero eight one one 811 or 877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're going to go right to the phones. We have a call from Tammy from Bloomington. Tammy?
7: Okay. I yeah. guess I'm on the radio. You are, <laughs>
1: Tammy. You're on the radio. <laughs> That's just
7: kind of strange. Um, I have a <laughs> a 15-year-old son who has been diagnosed with Asperger's. And um, I also have a daughter who is 10, and she has been diagnosed with ADD and dyslexia and uh, learning disability in um, math and also spelling. I, I was curious about the CIP program, and I'd like to learn more about that. Uh, also, I would, I would um, be curious also to learn more about adults who when they were growing up had no idea what um, autism was and and were just treated like different. Um, but perhaps they do have an autism problem they just don't know it. <laughs> hmm.
1: Okay. Um, Dr. Franklin you yeah. want to try at that first?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well I'll certainly defer to the colleagues on the panel as far as the, the program here. Um, I think that
1: Um, What about the adult portion of that question?
3: Uh, As a pediatrician, I'm not as skilled about talking about that. Um, I would say, though, that I think it's important that it is it is possible that some of the identification of people with Asperger's, for example, is a lot more common now than it used to be, you know, and the question is whether or not a person really needs to be identified. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have problems with communication, but they're threshold for causing them any impairment, then, you know, perhaps a lot of those people, you know, m- may be identified with as that having that diagnosis, but it certainly isn't necessary to do so.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Adria has something she wants to add.
6: Uh, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. I actually wasn't. Uh, formally diagnosed with asperger's until I was twenty um, by a developmental psychiatrist in Louisville and um, just all through school my mother is a pediatrician actually and all through school my biggest diagnosis I have several but my big my main diagnosis from birth was always mild cerebral palsy um, and then with come along at age five was nonverbal learning disability which was quite severe Um, so you know all through school it was just known as nonverbal learning disability which still exists today but you know come into the teen years and I wasn't interested in going out to the movies on a Friday I would stay in my room and study 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 and of course you know my parents were proud of me but at what point do you just pry to succumb to, okay, my child doesn't want to or doesn't know how to socialize with other peers. And I'd had no interest in the opposite sex, no understanding of, you know, how to, what constitutes a date versus a friendship. Very few friends at all in school. And um even, you know, poor eye contact in school and even by teachers I was noted as very bright and very polite and respectful but somewhat socially odd because I had very few peers and so my mom finally the the summer after my freshman year of college she wanted to kind of play I guess I don't want to speak for her because she's not here but she, I guess she wanted to wait and not be the hypochondriac mother <laughs> and see, is this just a phase or is it really a developmental disorder? Is it really asper's? And when come age 20 and I still was having no interest in relationships, very few interest in even outings, um, my, some of my friends at Brescia used to call me the library rat because I would, <laughs> I would go to the library and study versus go to the girls' basketball game, you know. They, she said, okay, let's go get – I'm going to have you tested, and sure enough. Mm-hmm. Did that come as a relief? Um, to me, I really didn't mind that much because I had been diagnosed with several other um, diagnoses throughout my childhood, so it was just pretty much another one to add to the list, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yes, now I knew that there was a medical reason why I was struggling so much in school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just – an implication of personality or an implication of, oh, you're not trying to, you're not trying hard enough, or oh, you're not cool, or, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Tammy, what more do you want to know about the the program?
7: Well, I see, um, uh, in the university setting, I see many um, very intelligent people, but who are, are functioning socially at a different level, and and have other issues also, which are kind of classic to the experience I have raising my son. And at some point, they have difficulties in their relationships and in their um, job place because of these deficits that they share. But uh, it's—I'm not sure that there's something you can do to—is there something you can do to help at that point, or 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 not? You talk about therapies for younger for younger kids, but when you're an adult, it's an entirely different thing.
5: Um, uh, this is Janelle, and I can kind of speak to that a little bit. Um, I know you mentioned you have an older child, mm-hmm. 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, the CIP has a summer program that mm-hmm. uh, that child might be appropriate for. I think it's a two or three week summer program um, that they conduct here at, at the university. So that's an option for him, and as far as, or her, I'm sorry, um, but when you when you move into adulthood, which is what I basically do at the college internship, provide occupational therapy services to those students transitioning to adulthood, it does become very different. Um, I mean, as far as an adult out in the community seeking my service, I, I don't think that probably happens very often, <laughs> um, but Um, it becomes a very different treatment session um, in that we're looking at their thought processes and how they're processing the world in order to make some change. And that's something that I do with the older students at CIP in that you have to have a really good understanding of how their mind is interpreting their environment and their world in order to teach them a, a different way to think about it or to function. Um, and it is very challenging because with this diagnosis, you have a very rigid, sometimes linear thought pattern, um, and it makes it it, it makes it difficult um, for them to, or they have challenges with uh, everyday life and hygiene and emotional regulation, mm-hmm. school, and, and all of that stuff.
7: Yeah, I see that a lot.
5: Okay, well, thank you.
1: All right, thanks a lot for the call. Our phone number is again: eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington. 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. And also you can go to our web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition to join a live chat. Um, I want to ask uh, Adria about the group that you're involved with, Students on the Spectrum.
6: Okay. Well, actually, I'm not involved in Students on the Spectrum. Oh,
1: you're not. Oh, okay.
6: But from what I understand, it is a club at IU for those uh, with some type of asperger or autism diagnosis and again don't quote me on this <laughs> i know you are a herald times editor but, but <laughs> don't, don't Okay, quote me. All right.
1: we're off the record
6: okay <laughs> um but from what i understand yes it is a club for those um diagnosed uh, with some type of autism or asperger's disorder um they get together, you know, have potlucks, um, play music, talk, just do typical things that college kids like to do. Um, And it, from last I checked, uh, I think they meet on Tuesday nights in the Union. Um, I'm not sure how it formed, but, and again, I'm not a part of it, but that's all I know.
1: Okay. Well, we won't quote you, and people can do a Google search on students on the spectrum if they really want to. They can find out more. Um, So, Adria, well, how's Bloomington suited you? How's Bloomington been as a as a change from from coming up from Kentucky from your last school? And nothing bad about your last school, but
6: mm-hmm. I mean, Brescia really did serve me well. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of academics, it it gave me friends for the first time as a young adult. I really thought that I was liked and I was respected, and I really like that because again for. Those of us with Asperger's and autism, peer relationships that are genuine are so rare and few and far between Mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, But Bloomington, wow. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Sometimes like Owensboro and Floyd County where my parents live and where I'm I'm originally from, I like to affectionately call Floyd County um, cow country. (laughs) <laughs> and John Deere country because
1: She was she said affectionately. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh
6: because unless you have a car really you can't really go anywhere. And since I can't legally drive, um, you know, unless mommy and daddy are feeling quite charitable, I think I'm gonna be written next Netflix in my room instead of going to the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> um and same for Owensboro. I mean Owensboro, you know, it's a little town. And Brescia is a small campus of of when I was there in 2010, probably 700 kids and everybody, you know, everybody knows everybody Mm -hmm. and everybody's business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, so, again, unless you have a car, I mean, the campus is roped off and it's Uh this little square and there wasn't very much to do unless you go to the bar on the weekends. Uh And uh, I didn't have a car, and so a lot of times my time was spent studying Mm -hmm. really but now that I'm in Bloomington I mean for goodness sakes I can walk to Soma I can walk to Kroger and get my groceries by myself I can walk to the Union go bowling I mean oh my goodness I feel like I'm (laughs) in a (laughs) travelossi my mom was so proud of me last weekend because for the first time I took the 3 East bus to the mall with Lucy by myself and went to Target which I had never done before in my life I'm like oh my gosh Oh my gosh! This is totally like a new beginning for me.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, what other kinds of things? So Lucy went with you to Target. Yes, she did. All right. I hope. Did she get any treats at Target? That sounds like something that she should get a treat for.
6: Um, uh, no, that no, she got um a couple of good girls and good dog and good puppy, but not treats. <laughs> That's good stuff, though. What what other kinds of things uh, does Lucy help you with? She is a. Uh... Privately trained to uh, find home on command based on severe visual-spatial disorientation, uh, difficulty with abstract reasoning for, you know, severe nonverbal learning disability, and also Asperger's syndrome. It's very common, and Dr. Franklin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that people and children with Asperger's or autism can be book smart in one area, but then... In other areas such as visual spatial reasoning can be like, okay, I know where I want to go, but I don't know how to get there and then come along and get lost. Mm -hmm. And so if that were to happen to me in the downtown area, for example, I can be like, Lucy, find home or Mm -hmm. whatever, and she'll go home. Now, if I were to vacation to Anchorage, Alaska, and get lost in Wildlife Park or whatever, I can't be like, "Ooh, you know, find home." <laughs> it has to be. They have to be trained on fixed routes where you mm-hmm. commonly go. It's very common. It's very similar to training a dog for someone with a visual impairment that you constantly pattern them to familiar routes over and over and over. Uh-huh. And how long have you had her? Uh, we got Lucy, uh, my parents and I. At about the age of, oh, goodness, um, she was born in January 2010, and I think she entered training at around three months. Um, She was obtained through a private breeder called Dixie Run Labradors in Mockport, Indiana, which is southern Indiana. Mm Mm-hmm. And then um, we found John Cenac at Canine Companions on South Walnut, who has done her private training. Um, first through Brian Bailey, who was the former CEO, started her at around you know four and a half months or so, and then we built her up, and she's about done now.
1: Well, I'll tell you, she's a she's a lovely thing. She's a uh, yellow lab just lying there on the floor, kind of not not exactly dozing off. She's alert to what's happening, but she's not all that interested. Yeah. <laughs> what we're
6: doing. <laughs> you know. All right.
1: <laughs> Numbers again, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, 285 9348 And the web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Dr. Franklin, are we any closer to finding out what causes this? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um,
3: basically, there, there's a lot of ongoing research, um, specifically a study that's a longitudinal study um, out of UC Davis in California that's called the CHARGE study. Um, which basically stands for childhood autism risks from genetics and the environment. Mm-hmm. So they're they've enrolled about a thousand kids uh, th- with the goal to enroll between a thousand and two thousand, um, and to look at research um, in terms of uh, environmental exposures, uh, immunologic and genetic factors, um, maternal conditions that may impact the fetus uh, prior to delivery, and just how genes and the environment sort of work together. So. This is like some of the latest research, and it's ongoing, so there'll be, you know, information that's sort of gleaned from that over time. Mm -hmm. Um, Just this week, in fact, um, the Pediatrics Journal, that is sort of the um, recognized journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, has looked at the association between uh, obesity and autism, and so that's sort of, you know, in the news this week. Um,
1: What did they find?
3: Well, basically what they found, and there this certainly is a lot more research that needs to be done, and, and we shouldn't take too much away from this other than just ongoing information, but um, basically what they found from this group of 1,000 a, a kids was that um, there's about a, a 1.6 uh, times the risk for an obese mom to have a child with, with autism. Um, and this also looked at other developmental disorders and uh, diabetes in moms, mm-hmm. so Basically, um, metabolic conditions that could impact the fetus uh, prior to delivery that might that might lead to autism or developmental disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this group of kids, basically half of them, about half of them had autism. One hundred and seventy of them had developmental disorders that were not autism, and then about three hundred and fifteen of the kids were appropriately developing kids. So mm-hmm. they were trying to control for you know uh, all these other variables. It's difficult, but this is really the one of the biggest and first studies of its type to Mm -hmm. be able to look forward instead of all the retrospective data that we've really had up Mm -hmm. to this point.
1: Well, As we promoted this show, one of the things that was in the the promo and I read at the beginning of the show is is some say that these rising numbers are due to increased awareness, and other people say that it's more signals changes in our environment. Do you have a theory on which one is closer to being right?
3: Um, I think there's probably some truth in both. You know, um, we know more. We're looking for it earlier. We have parents coming to us early on telling us, we. I think my child is autistic, could be. Is this possible? hmm When I was in training at Riley, and I've been in private practice for 13 years, that was not the discussion we typically had. Usually it was the child came in and we had worries. We had to figure out how to make this, you know, an an issue for the parents um, in a very gentle and diplomatic way. And as a provider, it's a lot easier for me now to have a parent come in and be informed and say, what do you think about this? And then I can really step back and say, let's talk about it more. Let's get more information. Um, And... It's hard as a parent to get that information. There's no question about it. Um, But it's much easier if the parent has that, you know, sort of looking for those things. And I think that's just awareness, you know.
0: Do these um, kinds of disorders affect uh, males more than females? What are the percentages on that? This is in debate, but roughly
3: uh, in, in autism, boys have this diagnosis about four times as often as girls do. But for the girls, it can be more of an impairment. So it depends on where they fall on the spectrum. But um, we know there's genetics involved because, you know, there's certainly a gender bias there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but there's also this question as it goes around as to whether or not there's a bias toward identification. And that if you mm. have a boy, you know, your son, you're looking for it more in your son than you are in your daughter because you know that that's that's possible. Mm. And, and for families who have more than one child they're more likely to have a second child on the spectrum. So, you know, that's another great question as to whether or not, you know, what's the genetics there? How does that, you know, figure into the equation?
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Janelle, you do, you work at Riley as well. Could you talk about your work up there?
5: Um, Yeah, my work up at Riley focuses on the safe transportation of kids with special needs. So I conduct evaluations um, on children who no longer fit in a car seat that you can buy at the store. And I evaluate children who have neurological impairments who might not be able to hold up their head or sit up. Um, But I also have evaluated many, many children with autism. Mm -hmm. And we recently just finished a research, a retrospective study looking at all of the occupational therapy charts in a time period. And what we found was that 75% of those families were looking to us as a healthcare provider to help them figure out um, some solutions because their child with autism was escaping their child restraint in the car. And this is a serious health and safety risk for the family and the child. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're writing up that paper and hope to get that published so that there can be more awareness of this, that um, families sometimes don't know where to turn when it comes to escaping a child restraint. Hmm. And so that's been uh, an interesting part of my job up there. Mm-hmm. That's a complication I would not have thought of. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. So, Adria, from your experiences, uh, and, you know, now you're you were diagnosed at 20. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but you're just barely over 20. Um, you know, what are things that you would like for people to know about, you know, about people who have autism or Asperger's and and have maybe have a little bit you have difficulty communicating at first?
6: I think one of the biggest things – some one of the things I also do other than go around um, – other than do – I do – well, admissions outreach for CIP. I'm, I'm the student ambassador. And then also um, I've written for the IDS. But I – you know, also – Sometimes I will go around to local businesses and schools and talk about how to better integrate children with autism and developmental delays um, into environments that are not typically suited for them. Um, Like speak to student teachers about how to, um, you know, if you have a child with special needs come into your classroom, how do you accommodate that child in a regular education classroom and still allow them to get the best experience possible? Mm -hmm. Mm Um, and how?
1: And what would you tell me if I was a student teacher about how to do that?
6: First thing I always like to say is that children should love school. Mm-hmm. I've been saying that I used to say when I was younger. My mother, my mother. I think I've mentioned this as a pediatrician, and sometimes people would ask me, "Adria, how's school?" And probably beyond the age of eight to maybe, oh gosh, ten school was not a pleasurable place for me because that's really when the bullying started and it really picked up 15, 16 years old, junior, junior high and high school but at that age, you know 15, 16, I really began to notice I was different and understand that, you know, what I was missing out on and that I was different but basically understand that um, I would say to these people that would ask me how school was, I don't go to school anymore I go to hell
2: Oh my!
6: And to me, a child should never say that. Mm -hmm. School should be a pleasurable place for everybody, whether they are neurotypical or have autism or have spina bifida or have fetal you know fetal alcohol anything. You know, school. I I love academics, but what I didn't like about school was the socialization because I was bad. I was I had a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Now, if kids feel welcome, and if kids feel like school is a pleasurable place, that can change.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: And if you, if teachers are empowered, if teachers think that they have the capability, and that they love their job, and that they don't do it because it puts food on the table, but because they really love the kids, mm-hmm. then, then things can turn around.
5: I mm-hmm. also think that you know, there's a lot of focus, um, and I'm coming from a therapist perspective. Sure. OT speech, developmental, PT. There's a lot of focus on that early intervention and making sure those kids get treated early on. And then I feel like there's kind of a big gap when these kids get older and get into school. And, and school therapy is great, but it's usually fairly limited. And so there's several years or many years that they're not getting uh, mm-hmm. any outside Um, supplemental, OT, PT, speech, DT. Um, And and I've noticed that with my work at college internship program that maybe some of my students have had OT when they were younger, and then this huge gap of of, of not very many services, mm. where there was a lot of time there that we could have been developing um, their skills that they need for independent life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to know a little bit more about the, about the program in terms of, of what you do, the range of kids that you work with, how many kids are involved, how many students, I shouldn't call them kids, how many, they're young adults, how many students are involved, and what's the range of of the, uh, that they are on the spectrum, and what kinds of things are they, where are they interning
5: they um, i don't know exactly the total number of students Mm -hmm. at Twenty-three. okay adria does (laughs) (laughs) i believe (laughs) we won't quote you (laughs) and i don't i don't see all of them but i see some of them and and their their levels are are very different um so i have you know some students who are on a lower cognitive level and some that are not are on a real high functioning cognitive level um but my treatment focuses a lot on managing anxiety. Again, looking at that cognitive process. I know something that surprised me um, when I came to the program was how much anxiety these students experience on a daily basis hmm. about things that you and I probably doesn't don't, doesn't even cross our minds. Like an example. Um, well, let's see. Adria, can you give me an example of, like, something that... Like, for me... Like, I have
6: I have a schedule that, well, we all get a printout of our schedule, like, where we're supposed to be at any given time. But, like, for me, since I take care of Lucy, for example, my service dog, I have to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and she gets fed at, like, right after we get up. And if I, you know, sometimes if I don't, I just get nervous. I'm like, Adrian, you know, it's 7.55. It's not 8 o'clock. It's 7.55, stay in bed five more minutes. And it's just very rigid thinking.
5: <laughs> yeah, and, there, and there's some students that um, – I, I have one particular student who is anxious because of my face. It's not like a smiley face. It's more kind of a, a flatter affect um, that causes them a lot of anxiety. Um, anxiety of, you know, when someone's going to catch the bus. Um, mm. Anxiety of getting ready in the morning and being on time. When to take a shower, when not to take a shower. Just some of that basic stuff Mm -hmm. that just comes really naturally to us. Uh Um, And so that's been something that I work on with the students Um, and emotional regulation and Mm -hmm. sensory. Um, So you and I take in – well, everybody takes in so much information from their environment every day. Mm -hmm. Auditory, olfactory, visual, everything, and you have to process that and they're processing that in a different way and can cause emotional reactions that are different from ours and so working on some of that emotional regulation um, is something else that I work on with the students
1: mm-hmm. okay uh, dr franklin we have just a few more minutes to go in the program uh, from your experience as a pediatrician i mean what are what are some things you would tell parents that, that might give them uh, some um what's the word i'm looking for some comfort i guess about uh, the fact that there is help and there, there are people who can uh, help them decide or discover what's happening with their child and and help them uh, get support.
3: Um, just like everything else we do, I always try to tell parents that they really are the experts in their child. So when mm-hmm. they have something they're concerned about, whether it's autism or any other issue, that they bring it to someone's attention so that we can get them to the resources they need. Try to be patient. It's a, It's a process. <laughs> It's it's an ongoing, um, you know, issue like it is with all children in their uh, development. Uh, work in progress is what I often say to parents. Um, and in order for us to really get them to the resources, they, they need to be assertive and be the best advocate they can be. And if they don't get what they feel like they need or their child needs, that they are relentless. Mm-hmm. Because with a shortage of resources, and as we talked about, once kids are school age, there are, you know, it's difficult logistically to get them where they need to be with therapy and so forth that they continue to to try to tap into those resources it's it's hardest to see a family who really just doesn't know where to start mm-hmm. um, in bloomington though we're really fortunate that we have a lot of you know a lot of support in the school systems in the in the uh, other services that we that we can get the kids to but but mm-hmm. it is a process you know
1: yeah and i think you should have uh, have adria talk to everybody <laughs> she, She has had some challenges, but oh, my gosh.
0: And I'm sure you're making such a difference for the people who are coming up behind you. So uh, I hope you feel really
6: proud of yourself for that. I do. Thank you very much. Good.
1: You're very welcome. Well, we've been talking with uh, Adrian Nassim, Janelle Yonkman, and Dr. Heather Frankman. Brooke Gottdenker joined us for the first half of the program. We uh, appreciate your being here with us today. So that's uh, Noon Edition for another week for... Mary Catherine Carmichael and our producers, uh, Gretchen Frazee and Julie Roth for engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
2: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.
1: 333-1933 online at mypremierortho.